Hi. Uh, my name's Michael, Michael Kwan, one of the senior staff workers around the place. And uh, I actually started university in 1984, uh, which is probably before most of you were born. Let me turn down this lectern mic a little bit before the feedback kills everyone. Is that a little bit better? Yeah. Uh, I still remember in my, uh, one of my first EU meetings, it was a faculty meeting, uh, there was about 25 uh, of us in first year who were Christians, and uh, we were sitting uh, in the Bosch Lecture Theatre, and I still remember my faculty leader leading that meeting and saying to us, look at the person on your left, look at the person on your right, by the time you're interns, in five years' time, only one of you will be a Christian. Now, that scared the living daylights out of me, I think. I, I was keen as a Christian. I want to stay a, as, a, as a Christian. I can still remember later on in the year, we had a circular, a, a little uh, publication from the AFES, the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students, of which EU is a part. And the title of that circular was AFES Casualties List. And what it listed was in the last five years, people who are presidents, vice presidents, faculty leaders office bearers in the different Christian unions around the countryside who had fallen away. That was scary. If you're a person who's worried about falling away, if you're a person who's worried about your Christian life in the long term, 2 Peter's the letter for you, and I hope you pay attention over the next four weeks. Now, some of you might have been invited and and you're not a, a believer and you're just thinking, well, what has this got to do with me? Well, I hope that as you gaze upon this Christian worldview, that you have some idea of a Christian worldview which is resilient. Not a fake Christianity that goes by the wayside, but a solid and uh, robust Christianity. I I don't know whether you know this man, uh, Solzhenitsyn, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He died in August last year. I came across him in year 12 when I had to uh, study uh, his book, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. Um, But Solzhenitsyn was a a Russian man who actually was imprisoned in the Russian gulags in 1945 because of his anti-Stalinist comments. Uh, He was put in into the Russian gulags, uh, into torture camp. He was was put into internal as well as external exile. Uh, But Solzhenitsyn was an interesting man because he went into the gulags, uh, but after years of suffering, um, he actually left as a Christian. He'd gone in as a political idealist, as a humanist, as a man of principle, fighting against communism. Uh, But he actually left as a man who believed in God. Because what he saw inside those prisons was all the torture that went on and all the inhumanity that went on, that those political idealists, the humanists, well, they didn't have any resources to deal with that. And he saw in the Christians perseverance. He saw in the Christians' ability to cope with the suffering. And so he found out about Christianity in the intern camps. And afterwards, and during the camp actually, he became a Christian. Went in as a non-Christian, left a Christian. Because persevering Christian faith is effective. Now that's interesting to you. I hope you pay attention as well. But the passage that we're dealing with today is just the first 11 verses of 2 Peter. And it's a little bit difficult It's not an easy passage, and so you need to look at the text. So if you haven't got a Bible with you, can you just squirm a little bit and look uncomfortable so that those people who've got two Bibles or sitting next to someone with a Bible can just look around and so you can share and all look at the text? That would be really helpful. Now, I'll tell you what we're going to do. What we're going to do first is we're going to overview the passage, the first 11 verses, 
And then we're going to go back and look at other bits in a little bit more detail. So what we're going to do is just run through the passage and then we're going to go back. Okay. So it starts off with a greeting, a fairly normal greeting uh, as part of the New Testament letters in the New Testament epistles. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle. He writes with an authority of an apostle. He writes with the commission of an apostle. Servant. He writes as a servant because no Christian, no matter what their rank or what their title is, never outgrows being a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he came to do. He said, I came not to be served, but to serve. That's what Christianity is all about. As you're saying, you become a servant. And whether you're an apostle or not, you're always a servant of Christ. Now, don't sit back. Uh, This probably seems like, uh, oh no, what's going on here? Here's the preacher. He's going to go through every word. This is going to take forever. He's probably spent too much time in his commentary and all he wants to do is just read it out. You know, um, it's sort of like, um, you know, in week one, you, you buy a, a lecture pad for every subject that you have and, and every lecture pad, the first few weeks, there's a beautiful margin down the left-hand side and you write the date on the right-hand side and when you look at the first few pages of your lecture note, it's really neat. And by now in week seven, you, you can't understand what you're writing now. That, that's right, isn't it? Um, hopefully it won't be like that. But if you're thinking, man, we're just going to go through every word. Oh, man, I've been at church for ages and I'm just about to turn off. Don't, because have a look at what he says there. Have a look at who he's writing to. He's writing there to those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. What he's saying there is that he's writing to people with a faith of equal standing. Equal standing as the apostles. Peter's not writing to people who are in trouble. He's not writing to Christians who are on the racks or something like that. He's writing to Christians of equal standing as the apostles. That is, there are no two classes of Christians here. All Christians have the same standing as the Apostle. It's not Peter is closer to God or something like that. No, they're of equal standing. He's no closer than you. He's writing as a Jew to Gentiles. More importantly, he's writing as an Apostle to non-Apostles, as an Apostle who's an eyewitness to people who weren't Apostles, who weren't eyewitness. And here's one of the thrusts of the letter. What he's trying to do is that he's trying to guard the faith when the apostles, when the original eyewitnesses have gone. And Peter says, listen, you Christians to whom I'm writing to now, you never saw Jesus. You never heard of him. You weren't there. But your faith is of equal standing to mine. It's got implications for us, of course. And some of us always want to say, oh man, if, if only I was there, if only I saw Jesus, my faith would be so much stronger, so much more robust. No, no. We're just like the hearers of Peter, Peter's letter. We come to this faith, we receive this faith, and our faith is of equal standing as the apostles. That's what he's saying. Well, naturally comes after the greeting is the blessing. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Uh, The blessing follows on quite naturally. It's a prayer which comes quite frequently in the New Testament epistles after the greeting. And he prays for them, for grace and peace. 
which is a summary of all the Christian values of blessings and gifts from God, the grace and peace will be theirs in abundance. And those things come by knowledge, knowledge of God. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes' time. It's just an interesting beginning, right? He, he gives his greeting. He mentions, by the way, Jesus as both Lord and God, as Saviour as God, that Jesus is God. It's only a few times in the New Testament that he actually does that. And there's some references there that you can chase up, which is really helpful for us. And then he flows on with the, with the blessing. The problem is, we get this massive heading in most of our English Bibles, and then it goes on to the next thing. And the actual content of the prayer actually spelt out for us in verses 3 to 11. You've got to remember that in the original language, uh, the Bible wasn't written in paragraphs. It, it didn't have numbers for verses. Uh, in fact, sentences weren't invented. There was no punctuation marks. It was all just one slab of text. And you had to work out the sentences by context. And it's helpful for us to remember that because verses 3 and 4 actually is connected with verses 2. In fact, verses 2 and 4 probably is one sentence in the way that the grammar is constructed. Why am I saying that? The reason why I'm saying that is verses 3 and 4 is actually the basis of the blessing that comes in verse 2. Not only is it the basis of the blessing in verse 2, it's also the basis of the actions which come in verses 5 to 7. And so verses 5 and 7 actually start off, for this reason, the greeting... The blessing, the basis of those blessings, which become the basis of the actions to follow in verses 5 to 7, and then in verses 8 to 11, they're the consequences. The consequences of taking those actions and the consequences of not taking those actions. If you possess these qualities, you will have an effective Christian life, is what Peter is saying. If you don't, you're nearsighted and blind. You're warned and you're encouraged as well. So there's the passage, right? So you remember nothing else. You know the outline of the passage. You can go back and read it for yourself. There's the greeting, there's the blessing, there's the basis, there's the actions and the consequences. But let's go back and deal with it a bit more because we need to look at the basis because if the basis is the basis of the blessing, it's also the basis of the action, then you better understand this basis pretty well. And it's in verses 3 and 4. Let's have a read of it again. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now, it's one of those sentences that you know what every word means, you know what every phrase means, but after someone reads it, you have no idea what it says. Uh, So it's actually helpful just to slow down and take it bit by bit and see where it's going. Uh, You'll firstly notice that it starts off with God. It begins with God. It's God who's the source of everything that's spoken here. That is, Christianity finds its foundation and its basis in God. I think so often we read the Bible and we say, oh, what's in it for me? You know, the gospel is all about me. It's about me going to heaven. It's about me having a, a fantastic life. It is that. But it's more, it's about God's plans. It's about God's purposes. See, he's the one who gives faith. It says there in, in the first verse, we receive this faith. It's not something that we created. And God gives us stuff in verses 3 and 4. It starts off with God. And God gives us everything. We're going to come back to that a little bit later. Because it's going to be a key point in these two verses. And the thing that God does is he calls us. And of course, calling is related to choosing, isn't it? 
and choosings related to the purpose for which you are chosen. So, for example, Richard, who read beautifully for us, I can call him, right? And so I've chosen him. I can say, Richard Glover, come up. And then you think, oh, man, that's not fair. No, you don't. You think, what, what's the reason which Michael has chosen Richard? It might mean he, he's got a ridiculous surname. Richard Glover, I mean, what is that? Is that a fake name? When he came in first year, I think we kept on trying to delete him off the roll because we thought someone was joking around and <laughs> Richard Glover, drive-time presenter at City Uni. No. It might mean... I might have chosen him because he's got a great reading voice and there's a lot more passages to read and rather than getting sick of my voice, we should hear Richard's voice. I might have chosen him because he does education and they do a subject called education technology where they learn how to use a piece of chalk and write on the board, right? And and I need lots of things written on the board and, and he's the expert to do that. Or it might be because standing next to me, I might just look more handsome. There's all sorts of reasons why I might have chosen him. But the choice here is related to life and godliness. That's why God has chosen us. And we've given everything that we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him, through him who calls us. And so we come to this knowledge idea. Knowledge is so often derided in our our world, in our Christian circles at least. Knowledge. We don't want more knowledge, we just want more actions. No, you're not deriding it. Well done. You're here at public meetings. I'm preaching to the converted here. But have a look how many times a knowledge word comes just in this little section of 1 Peter. In verse 2, you remember, those blessings and grace come by knowledge. It speaks of knowledge here again in verse 3. And in verse 8, you remember, he talks about knowledge that leads to an effective and productive Christian life. In Christian living, knowledge is essential. The knowledge of Christ is essential to effective Christian living. And the knowledge of Christ and of God is crucial in this passage. Don't poo-poo it. But it's not just intellectual knowledge, is it? It's personal knowledge. It's like my kids, right? My kids are young, they're six years old, five-year-old, three-year-old. I can't get them to write an essay on fatherhood. They just can't do it. They can hardly write, right? But I tell you what, in a crowd, they can pick me out as their dad. And they'll run to me and they'll trust me. They jump off the bed expecting me to catch them because they trust me. It's that sort of personal knowledge. And it's knowledge which actually produces action. It's personal knowledge that affects you. You see, so many people run around saying, you know, we don't need more of this Christian knowledge stuff. We, we, just, we just want to be told what to do. That's what we need. We want action. None of this theology stuff. We just want action. I think what I want you to see today and what I want you to know is that true knowledge, true theological knowledge, true knowledge of God actually leads to action. True knowledge isn't like the stuff that you read in the Good Weekend in that first page, which is just wonderful, interesting little bits that you store away for the next trivia night. The knowledge that you have actually does something. It's a knowledge that leads to action. It's like, if you trust me, If I give you some knowledge now, it will lead to action. So if I say to you, for example, that there's a bomb in this building underneath the front counter here, it's going to go off in one minute's time. I don't need to say to you, please get up, please pack up your things and move out in an orderly way out of this room. I don't need to say that. That piece of knowledge, bomb, one minute, explosion, leads to action. 
And God's knowledge is like that. If you understand God truly, if you understand Jesus truly, it leads to action. And we're going to see that in a little while. That when you know him well, it leads to action. But come back to that everything word, that little phrase that we skipped. Because now we come to the crunch. And I think the crunch for this talk and the whole series. And if you're a Bible underliner, highlighter, asterisk, whatever that verb is, um, then this is the verse to underline. This is the verse to highlight. Because what it says here is that we've been given, through the knowledge of him, everything that we need. Everything. There is nothing lacking here. Everything that we need is given to us. Do you get that? Now, I've got to give a qualification, by the way. It's not everything totally, is it? It's everything there, it says, for life and godliness, or godly living, as it says in the TNIB. It's life and godliness that we've got given everything. So you think, wow, there's a qualification. See, it doesn't tell you about metrics. It doesn't tell you about education philosophy. It doesn't tell you about organic chemistry. It doesn't tell you about matrices. There's a whole lot of stuff that it doesn't tell you about. So there's all wonderful stuff that we can keep on looking at and enjoying, and, and, and that's great. But I think if you do that, you just totally missed it. You've missed the point. Because what Peter's saying here is that you need nothing more for life and godliness. Metrics is great fun. right? Believe it or not, I actually enjoyed matrices. I, I, I loved statistics. I, I, I spent a whole year here in this lecture theatre doing organic chemistry and inorganic chemistry. And I'm one of these weird people that actually enjoyed it, right? But frankly, those things aren't essential for life and godliness. It's actually not a destructive qualification to say, look, there's some things in the Bible and there's a whole lot of other things. No, no, it's actually a helpful qualification because it tells you about what's important and what's not important. It tells you that the important things are actually in the scriptures. We've been given everything through the knowledge of him through our understanding of God and Jesus. We're getting everything that we need. And it actually tells you the importance, the unimportance of metrics, of industrial relationships, of English literature, of grammar, of organic chemistry. See, you can actually go through life uneducated and be Christian and live an effective Christian life. You can actually go through life poor, and have an effective Christian life and live a godly life. You can do it. Now, I'm not saying those things that, that, that are outside of the scriptures are bad things. No. I'm just saying what's important and what's not important for godly living. It's all there in the scriptures. We've been given everything that we need for life and godliness. And then comes this kooky verse in verse 4. Um, that talks about our divine participation and, and that we can escape the corruption of this world. Now, I, I don't know completely what this verse means, but that's okay. I, I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean mystical pantheism or something like that, that you know, somehow we're in, in the ether with God or something like that. And I know that it's not just, not just all about the future, it's about the now. In fact, it, it sounds like relentless presence. It sounds like transforming power, actually. It sounds like annual conference. And so, frankly, if you don't get this passage, can I get you to please sign up for annual conference? 
Um, and, and if any of you write questions on verse 4, I'm just going to say go to annual conference. Um, because that's a place that you're going to find out about the Spirit, about what a divine participation that God lives inside of us looks like. And what it is that we can escape the corruption of this world. Come to annual conference. Understand this knowledge of what God has done. Understand his promises. And it transforms your life because it's got, given you everything that you need for life and godliness. Well, now, now comes the punchline. Because his divine power in verses 3 and 4, we're equipped to actually live the Christian life. And so we're called to action. We're called to action here. It's almost here that Peter gives a list of all the, the good things, all the right things that you need to do as a Christian. Um, it, it's all the good things because in chapter 2, he starts talking about false teachers and almost like, hey, look, here's the genuine stuff, so please, you've got to know this well so you know when the, when the fake stuff comes. A, a friend of mine actually says that, um, a, a friend of his that worked for the, uh, for the Bank of England uh, when they were being trained as tellers, the way that they were trained was that they learnt to count uh, 100-pound notes. And they just kept on doing it over and over again. Here's a stack, count, another stack, count, 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 count. And what they did was to keep on counting the normal 100-pound notes so that you get the feel of it and the smell of it, the texture of the notes and what it looks like and what it feels like and what it smells like and so that when a fake note gets put in, they go, yep, there it is. It's probably the reason why I enjoyed three years of anatomy and physiology and all that sort of stuff. So they actually know what abnormal anatomy looks like and abnormal physiology. If all the interesting stuff comes on later in my course. Of course, that doesn't always happen. Um, I uh, still remember working at Manly Hospital one year uh, after I graduated. And working at Manly Hospital on a Friday night just a bad job, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's just right near all the pubs and clubs. And the northern beaches are famous for drink driving and lots of brawls after um, close downtime of, of pubs and clubs. Anyway, I, I knew it was going to be a bad night because I think at about 2 o'clock in the morning, I was handed this chart from a nurse which said 01.30, that's the time, 1.30 in the morning, uh, PFO, which uh, actually stood for pissed and fell over. But um, it's terrible, right? So I had to see this drunk guy. And uh, he was in a lot of pain, a lot of pain in his wrist. And he goes, oh, doc, my wrist is really, really sore. I think I've broken my wrist. Look, there's a lump here. Uh, check out your wrist. There's a lump there, right? It's called the ulnar styloid. Um, so I go, I, I press on it. And, and I go, look, it's not tender. So I know that's not fractured. And I go, look, this lump is normal. It's called the ulnar styloid. In fact, you've got one on your other wrist. Right? <laughs> and so he goes, oh, no, I've broken my other wrist too. <laughs> But here's a genuine article. This is the genuine stuff to which we're going to compare some fake stuff later on. And you've got to know these things. And the words that Peter uses is, add to your faith these things. Here's your faith. Here's the genuine stuff. Keep on adding to it. And the word is a word of investment. It's a word of, of cultivating, richly supplying. Keep on doing that. Invest in it. Build on it. And then he gives this incredible big list of seven different things that you add to your faith. Now, I don't know whether there's any particular order it is, whether it goes from the least important to the most important or something like that. I think it's fairly random, actually. And, and I don't think there's any point in going back to the original Greek because you'll find that the original Greek actually says exactly the same thing. There's no point in doing that. 
It's almost like it's the same sort of list that you get in Galatians chapter 5 about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's that sort of stuff. It's like the quality of love in 1 Corinthians 13. And here's a list. And here you are, you're to invest in it. You're to add to your faith goodness, the moral virtues that go with life. You're supposed to add to your faith, to, to, to your faith and goodness, knowledge, understanding. Intellectually grasping the concepts, growing in understanding. You're to add to your faith self-control. It's not about impetuousness. It's about living a self-controlled life. It's about perseverance. It's about more than just intellectual engagement. It's more than emotional engagement. It's about a determination to keep on going. It's about godliness, a respect for God's will, his purpose, his moral way of living. It's about brotherly kindness, which I think is a better translation than what was read. Uh, Because I think probably the only time uh, uh, that I've, I've seen... The, the, uh, the, that world of the ancient world using family relationship words, words outside the family is in the Bible. And it talks about the way that we treat our, our Christian brothers and sisters, Christian, Christian family, is brotherly kindness. It's a family relationship that we have. It's not just about us, but it looks outwards. And so it lubricates the whole thing about love. It's about love. Love for God. Love for your brothers and sisters. And you're to invest in those things. And if you do those things, there are going to be consequences. If you possess these qualities in verse 8, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think lots of people try to short-circuit this paragraph. They long to be used in the Christian life. But it seems to me Peter is saying, first of all, are you useful? Are you usable? Make every effort to grow so that you'll be kept from being ineffective and unproductive. And the warning comes, it's dangerous not to do so. If anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind. You can't see in the distance. I don't know who of you here are short-sighted. It's terrible. I was short-sighted. Wore glasses for many years. And every time you drank hot soup, everything just fogs up. (laughs) You go from indoors to outside, everything fogs up. You take off your glasses, you don't know what's going on in the distance. Uh, Many years ago, I was involved with the Sawtell Beach Mission, and one of the joys of working or serving on that team was working with the the cook of the Sawtell Beach Mission, who was actually... um, uh, Peter Jensen, who's the Archbishop of Sydney, uh, Anglican Archbishop of Sydney, he was his Sunday school teacher and coached him in um, uh, rugby uh, when he was a little boy. Um, and it's a great joy because you hear all these wonderful stories. And one of the stories is that, as most of you might know, because of the thick glasses that, you, you, that Peter wears, is that he's as blind as a bat. Um, he, he, he can't see without his glasses. Um, but anyway, um, uh, he was, uh, Brian was coaching Peter in, in rugby and, uh, so, and, and Peter was apparently quite fast. He played on the wing. So he just said to Peter, look, when you catch the ball, just run as fast as you can. Keep the white line to your left and just go for it. Don't worry about anything else. Just run. Uh, so one day Peter caught the ball and ran straight across the field because he kept the halfway line to his left. <laughs> but it's terrible when you can't see in the distance. You just don't know where you're going. And what's worse with these people, not only are they nearsighted and blind and they can't see in the distance, 
They've forgotten that they've been cleansed from past sins. They can't see in the distance, in the future, and they can't see in the past as well. They've forgotten that they've been cleansed. They've forgotten their identity. And it's terrible when you don't know who you are. And one of the things I learn about parenting is that you never call your children naughty because if you keep on saying it and reinforcing it, it becomes part of their identity. And they go, well, I'm just a naughty child, so I'll just do naughty things. That's who I am. And so I've got to say, look, Anastasia, that was a naughty thing to do, but you're not like that. You're a good girl. Just do the right thing. Do the right thing that's appropriate for you. That's the appropriate thing to do. And it's like these people. They've forgotten that they've been cleansed from their sins. And if you know that you're a sinner, then you'll go on sinning. And Peter says, no. You've been cleansed from your past sins. You're not living as a sinner. You're living as a redeemed person of Christ. So live according to your calling. Yes, you'll still sin. You'll still get into problems. I don't think anybody denies that. Ask for forgiveness. Start all over again. But that's not who you are. Don't forget who you are. No, says Peter, grow or fall. See, the thing is, these things aren't not, not only yours, they're to be growing as well. A, a famous illustration that used to be used many years ago, and I still like, you, like using, is uh, Anthony Horden, uh, who used to own a department store. Uh, sort of like before uh, uh, Maya, there was Grace Brothers, and before Grace Brothers, there was a, a chain called Farmers, and before all that, there was a, a set of stores owned by Anthony Horden. Uh, and he had this as his logo, a, a flourishing giant oak tree with this wonderful motto, while, while I live, I'll grow. As living and growing are synonymous. If you want to continue on in the Christian life, you need to be growing. That's what it's about. Persevering is continuing and growing. It's like riding the bicycle, the illustration that some of you might have heard of. If you want to stay upright, you keep on pedalling. You stop, you fall over. I mean, some of you are really clever and can stay in the same spot for a little bit. But frankly, it's so much easier riding and keep on going forward. You'll keep upright. While I live, I'll grow. See, I've been a staff worker here for about 10, 12 years. And uh, you know what? One of the most um, terrible insults that you can do as a student who goes through Sydney Uni and, and get benefits from EU, is come back and say, Mike, you're just like what I remember you. Uh, look, I understand the sentiment. Um, it's sort of a nice thing to say. But it's actually terrible. That is, if I'm not growing, even as a senior staff worker, and if I'm not changing, then I'm dying. Then my Christian life is a waste of time. I hope that you come back in years' time and say, Michael, your preaching is better. You're actually kinder. You're a more patient person. And I hope people say that about you as well. Whether you're a faculty leader, whether you're on, on the GC, on the exec, or whatever, that you're seeking to grow day by day. Because that's what persevering Christian, Christian life actually looks like. Well, he rounds off in verses 10 and 11. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. Now, those of you who got your theology sorted out, that's a fantastic sentence to have, isn't it? It's not either or, it's both and. It, it's, it's God who calls us. That's fantastic. 
It's God who elects us. God has chosen us. It's his doing. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's fantastic news. And yet, the amazing thing is there, it says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. That is, we're involved in the process as well. We're involved in the growing. We make decisions about it. It's both and. It's not either or. It's not like we do these things and, and, and can get into heaven and be right with God. No, no. It's God's grace. It's God's action. But we're involved in it as well. It's not let go and let God theology here. It's both and. Now, the education students like Richard uh, keep on complaining to me that um, uh, most of these talks are, you know, you don't just use all the learning styles and stuff like that. So here's the kinesthetic bit, right, of the whole series. So enjoy it, suck it in, it's beautiful, right? Now, um, uh, be next to the person, uh, with the person next to you, right? Do the finger grip thing, right? So get one hand, the other person get the other hand, right? Pull hard. It's nice and secure, isn't it? Sort of secure, right? Pull. Okay, now, okay? Me, 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 me. Okay, now, do that again, and the person on this side of the room, straighten out their fingers, right? Okay? Okay, one, two, three. Okay. It's broken. And I'm sorry if you hit the person next to you. Okay, now try something else, okay? Try the wrist grip. Okay? Pull hard. Right, now, now the person on this side of the room, let go. Never take an illustration to the nth degree. Um, But you get what I mean here. There's some sense of assurance, but I think it's more than that. That we're both participating in the job, that God is involved, that we're involved. It's an amazing process. Yes, therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager. What? To make your calling and your election sure. He who began a good work in you were carried on to completion. So continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, as it says in Philippians. Because doing that is an amazing outcome. You will never fall, it says there. Don't worry about falling away. Just do the right thing, is what Peter's trying to say. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Uh, the word for a rich welcome is the welcome that you get um, uh, at the end of a marathon uh, back in the olden days. Uh, you know that the marathon is the last athletic event in any sense of Olympics. And on the last day, there's a closing ceremony where the whole crowd gathers in the main arena waiting for all the festivities to happen. And where the marathon finishes on the last day is in that stadium. As they come through those doors in the main stadium and does that final lap around the stadium and the whole crowd cheers. It's that sort of welcome that Peter's writing off here. You continue. You persevere. You add to your faith all these things. And the promise is you'll never fall and you'll receive a rich welcome. If you're a Christian person here today, I hope you've heard the word of God clearly. And that is, as a Christian, you've got nothing more that you need for life and godliness. 
And I hope you've heard the other thing as well, is that given that you've got nothing more, then continue to be who you are. Keep on growing in what you are. Keep on working at it to make sure you never fall and you receive that rich welcome. The other piece of great advice I received when I was in first year was a little talk by the uh, Archbishop of Sydney at that time, Don Robinson. And he said to me and to our group, you make sure that you invest as much time in your Christian life as at least one of your main subjects that you're taking at university. Don't let your university brain go at bachelor's, master's, PhD level while your Christian brain stays at primary school, kindergarten level. If you're going to spend three hours a week in lectures, you make sure you sit under the word of God and be instructed in it for three hours in a week. If you have a truth for a couple of hours a week, you make sure you get into a Bible study where you're discussing with other Christians the truths of Christianity a couple of times a week. If you do a five-hour prac each week, you make sure that you spend that amount of time serving God's people and practising your Christianity as a form of service. You treat it like any subject so that you just don't get left behind as a baby Christian. What are you investing in? Is it investment that will carry on completion or are you investing in subprime mortgages or something? And if you're not a Christian here today, I want to ask you where you're heading and how do you know you're going to get there? I want to invite you back each week to keep on listening at this, to this Christian worldview, to see whether it's actually coherent, whether it makes sense of itself, it's internally consistent. I want you to check out whether it actually makes sense of the world, whether it's actually livable and doable but most of all, whether it's actually true. Talk to your friends about it. Let's pray together. Um, Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you've given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And Father, we pray that we'll continue to grow so that we'll receive that incredible rich welcome, that we'll never fall. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.